Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. I mean, I retreated into that world of TV because I, I felt so much more comfortable there. I just thought that this was the greatest thing. It was almost like a drug for me. And I became addicted. It took me a long time to break into show business of any kind. You know, it took just as long, if not longer, to break away from doing what I became known for into something that I really, really felt passionate about and wanted to do. But I'm meeting an executive at lunch, and I'm pitching him a new show. And he stops me in the middle of the pitch, and he says, can I ask you something? Why are you still doing this? I said, what, what do you mean? This is what I do. This is who I am. Okay, before we jump into this interview, I want to invite you to be considered for my 2019 Traveling Mastermind. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com and fill out the application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a great fit. This year, we'll be in Boston doing lots of cool things like training with Tom Brady's trainer, Alex Guerrero. In the middle of the year, we'll be heading to Monaco doing things like vintage car rides through the French Riviera. And then we're going to wrap the year in Florence, Italy, doing things like truffle hunting and hot air ballooning over Florence. Look, Life is all about fulfillment, and I really try and walk the walk. So if you are looking to be part of our tribe of 28 high-achieving entrepreneurs that are in the six- and seven-figure range, fill out your application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com to be considered. So think of the mastermind as having two parts. The first is the trip itself. And the second part is what goes on over the four days within the mastermind. Our group of 28 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do that through a variety of different exercises, brainstorming activities, breakout sessions, goal setting sessions, you know the drill. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a fit. All right, let's jump into today's episode. You are listening to a very special 12 Days of Christmas Work Hard, Play Hard episodes. These are episodes that I think had the most impact, so I wanted to share it with you as we are approaching the end of the year and getting focused on our goals and what we want to do in 2020. So I hope you enjoy this countdown. Bill, welcome to the show. Hello. I'm very happy to be here. You know what, man? I am excited that I get to do this interview <laughs> with you for so many reasons, most of which is because you feel like family to me and my family. And I'll tell you why. Oh, I'm minute. sorry. <laughs> so, thank you so much for being willing to do this with me. I'm, uh, I'm ready and willing. You know, this is the first podcast that I've ever done while somebody is on their walk recording it on my iPhone. So this is going to be one wow. of the books. What you're hearing is something I do every single morning, which is I, I live in, in California and I, in Los Angeles, and I walk about a mile and a half to my favorite coffee shop, and it just gets me going. 
I then have my coffee. I have this little, it's a little street called Larchmont Boulevard. And there's a great coffee shop called Go Get Em Tiger. Garbage man doing his thing right now. <laughs> but I walk down, it's a little like Mayberry every morning. And I see the barber and I see the people on the street and I see the kids that work in the coffee shop. And I'm so, it just gives me a feeling of community that I fit in, that I belong somewhere. I think it's very important. You know, this is very Larry King of you. It is? Yeah, this is what he does. He does his walk to uh, into Beverly Hills every morning into the deli uh, where he meets yeah. uh, two or three friends for like the last 25 years. He's, I bet he goes to Nate now. I bet that's, that's where, where he goes. That's where he goes. He goes to Nate now. Yeah. So, okay, what I'd like to do is I'd like to cover a bit of your background, talk about your yeah. new Netflix show, and then wrap up with some rapid-fire questions. Cool? Whatever you want. All right. So I think a good jumping-off point would be to rewind the clock a little bit and start with what we actually share together, and that is yeah. being born in Queens. Oh, I, you know who else was born in Queens? A lot of people, but who? The president of the United States. Oh, you know what? I actually dated a girl in uh, Forest Hills who lived yeah. next door to his dad. Oi! <laughs> if I could have only, <laughs> if I could have only knocked on the door. <laughs> so yeah. I lived in, I lived in Queens until I was thirty, but you moved to the Bronx when you were two. Can you kind of tell us what sort of things you did with your family in your Bronx apartment? Oh, my goodness. We didn't do very much. Mostly what I did was watch television. I mean, I retreated into that world of TV because I I felt so much more comfortable there. I felt so much safer there. And I was in love with all the comedians and all the comedy shows. I just thought that, that... this was the greatest thing. It was almost like a drug for me. And I became addicted to the point where my parents, even when I was in my 20s, would say, what are you going to do? Get a job watching television? And then as soon as I did get a job in television, I sent them the biggest television that I could find with a note on it that said, ha ha. <laughs> okay, well, when you left there, though, you went from the Bronx yeah. into more suburban Rockland County, right? Yes, that's right. How, right. How it was, was a, life about a half life, hour north of? Yeah, how yeah. was life different for you from going from the Bronx to Rockland County? It was as if I moved to another planet. I also, because we didn't have a lot of money and they, they could barely afford this like thousand square foot house, three bedroom house in this town. We had to move because they couldn't carry two, a mortgage and a rent on an apartment in, in New York. So we had to move in April of fourth grade. Can you imagine? No. Coming in new to a class in April. That was so weird. And I was picked on and beaten up daily. It was so terrible that I retreated even more into the world of television. It's interesting. We talk about, you know, where we're from. Obviously, you're in L.A. now. But, you know, my wife said to me she's going to write a book called Straight Out of Queens because of so many successful people who come out of there. Why do you think that there are so many successful people that come out of places like Queens and the Bronx? Maybe because you got to work a little harder to get out of those places. Yeah. That that has something to do with it. 
uh, Warren Buffett said, any kid born into a wealthy home is automatically on welfare. Mm, I never heard that. A lot of sense. I take that and I add to it, which is you'll never have any self-esteem if you don't do things for yourself. So in a way, not having money growing up is the motivation to do things for yourself because you have to, and then you get rewarded even in tiny ways, and that encourages you to do more for yourself. But somebody who doesn't have to struggle when they're younger, they don't struggle, and they maybe never achieve anything because everything's handed to them. And then, quite frankly, they're miserable. You know, this is probably why they say wealth gets a generation. That could be. You know, you've mentioned before that you can't blame your parents for their parenting skills because it wasn't their field, which I thought, right. was, which I thought was funny. Shit. <laughs> but what I, what I see on your show, which we'll get into in a second, is a great relationship yeah. with your parents. Have you always yeah. been this close? I mean, I just saw you yeah. guys doing wheelchair ballet with them on Instagram. Yes. You guys yeah. have always been close. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We, the, the, I owe everything to them. I really mean that. My whole sense of humor comes from them. Everything that, was, that I used from my life in, in Everybody Loves Raymond comes from them. Even the pilot story you know, that I put in there about Fruit of the Month Club that got the show on the air comes from them. So I'm not exaggerating. They, when I made the movie Exporting Raymond, where we took uh, Everybody Loves Raymond to Russia, try to help them turn it into Everybody Loves Kostya. I thought of doing a Skype call with my parents from there because I was out of Russian family's home who's, who, and the grandparents were very tech savvy. They knew how the computer worked. They knew how to do everything as opposed to where I came from. So I said, can, just off the top of my head, can we, why don't we Skype with them? The cameras were rolling and my parents happened to be up and it's the scene of the movie. Because they were so funny. And when I got uh, the food show, travel show, I thought, I'm, uh, I'm no idiot. I have, ca- I have recurring characters that work. And I have a good excuse in the travel show to call them. Because I think the Skype call home is the modern day equivalent of the postcard. So I put it in. And sure enough, they're the hit of this show too. So everything I have ever done involved them somehow or is for them. I really actually made a conscious effort to do my shows, whatever shows I created or worked on. I always had them and their sensibility in the back of my head because there's enough stuff for kids, for young people, edgy stuff, sexually explicit stuff. And I thought, not that I'm a prude, but what if I did a show that my parents would like too. How has that affected their life? In other words, are people recognizing them now? Yep. Yep. What, and it's what, the cutest thing. It's the what's cutest that thing. Like my mother, them? well, my mother pretends not to care about such things until the moment somebody, you know, taps her and says, are you Phil's mom? And she lights up. Uh, right? Yeah. It's so cute. And my dad, of course, loves it. You can tell if you see him on the show, he loves tell jokes he loves to and he's you know my dad is 92 and he's still like the world's greatest 
library for old Jewish humor. He has it all. He knows every joke. You know, there's a great podcast you should check check out if you haven't. It's called uh, Old Jews Telling Jokes. So my dad is on there. Oh, you're I, kidding. I know, yeah, I don't know if it's still going, but he did it years ago. They filmed him. If you go on YouTube and, and search for Max Rosenthal, Old Jews Telling Jokes, he's on there. <laughs> That's so awesome. Yeah. Can yeah. you pinpoint the moment that you knew you were funny? Uh, I, I'm going to say that when my parents had company over, you, did you have this where your parents called having friends over company? My wife and I, my wife and I laugh about it all the time because our kids are like, why do you call it company? Yes. We're having company. And <laughs> we had, I say what we had to do. We had to get an Entenmann's cake. My mother gave me $5. She said, go to, go down the store, get an Entenmann's cake. We're having company. Yes, we're okay. We're exactly the same. So, yes, where would we be without Entenmann's? Um, yeah. <laughs> by the way, every day I came home from school, I'd eat an Entenmann's chocolate donut. <laughs> Me too. Me yes. too. They were so right? good. Yes. So phenomenal. Yes. It finds us all together. We're all we're all related by Entenmann's. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. I remember as a very, very little kid, I'm talking about three, four years old, that when they were having company, if I could imitate the honeymooners, Ralph and, and Norton, I would get laughs from, from them and their company. And I, maybe I'd stay up a little later and I'd get some chocolate cake or, or you know, rug or whatever, whatever they were having. And that was the first inkling that, oh, I like this. I like this attention. And then when my brother was born, when I was about almost five years old, which I think is not a good, or at least it wasn't good for me, a good age span between kids. Because the five-year-old understands that he's been replaced. It's not like, oh, look, I have this great, baby brother, it's just old enough to understand, oh, you don't, I thought I was the center of attention and now you've brought in my replacement cast and all your attention is going over there. So I had to work doubly hard to get mom and dad's attention, right? And everybody else's too, which probably, so this sibling, this stupid sibling rivalry, this jealousy, Probably is the reason why I'm in children. And I wonder if I'm alone. Probably not. You're probably not alone. You know, I, I want to fast forward a little bit to you deciding on becoming an actor. You started as okay. an extra in movies, but you also decided that you wanted to try your hand at writing. And you wrote a show with a friend years ago called Tony and Tina's Wedding. What did These were my friends from... These were my friends from college. So when you're, when you're, if you're funny in school, right? And that's all I ever aspired to be. I didn't aspire to be an actor. I just aspired to be funny without knowing how to do stand-up comedy. So the only legal way to do that in school is to be in the school play. And so that's what I did. And I succeeded at that. 
even in junior high and summer camp and then high school, I was such a big star. And that I thought, well, this is who I am now. I guess this is working. So I guess this is what I'm meant to do. So I went to Hofstra University for theater. I never wanted to learn about or cared about writing and directing and producing. I just wanted to be funny on stage. I didn't even care about being a serious actor. Just wanted to be funny. But it turns out I had to take all this other stuff. My One of my lines I like to say is that they made me study all this stuff I knew I would never use, like English. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and sure enough, everything I learned from from college, from Hofstra, would be essential in the running of a show, right? In producing and directing and writing. So you never know. That's the lesson, everybody. Take every, if you're a writer, take an acting class. If you're an actor, take a directing class. They're all branches off the same tree. And the job is to make the tree as strong as possible because you never know where your job is going to be and you never even know which is going to be your strongest branch. What would you say that show taught you about the realities of the business of show business? So with Tony and Tina's wedding, and yeah. that was very the early realities on, of show business? The yeah. realities of the business of show business. Yes. Yes. So we did this show with friends and then I got completely screwed over by my friends. And that was a painful lesson. In other words, I, I, I was cut out of the show after being in it and helping to have created it. I was cut out of it after a year because the people at the top wanted to take the credit for themselves and take the money for themselves and the fame for themselves. And I was cut out and I didn't have any friends like backing me up or, you know, I was suddenly cast out. At that moment, it was the worst thing that ever happened to me because not just that I lost my job and the dream was to work in show business and we had struggled for years. And now here it was, and then, and then it wasn't. Now we're starting over. But that thing that I thought was the worst thing that ever happened to me, this being abandoned, turned out to be, of course, the best thing that ever happened to me. Because that's when I moved to Hollywood. That's when I bore down and started writing for real. And everything good came from that. So indirectly, Tony and Tina was responsible for getting you to L.A. It was absolutely one of the prime motivating factors. The other thing was I had a friend of mine who believed in me as a writer for no reason. He just thought I was funny. He came to my house with a word processor. This was at the same time as that play and said, we're going to write a screenplay. I said, I don't know anything about writing a screenplay. He said, well, I know the structure and you're funny, so let's do it. And I had a ball working with him. He was my best friend. And so his name was Alan Kirschenbaum. He's passed away. But he, he, I went to high school with him. And he was a great, funny guy. Really smart. Already working in TV. And a little younger than me. So I was just amazed that he'd want to even, you know, talk to me uh, about working together. But we did. And then we sold the screenplay. When I'm telling you I had $200 in the bank, we sold the screenplay to HBO in 1987 or 8. We sold it for $70,000. That was, I mean, I told my parents, we sold this thing. My mother, like there was silence on the phone. She goes, I said, are you there? She goes, you know, we've worked our whole lives to have that in the bank. 
What is it? He was feel? almost mad. I, it's, it's kind of crazy because I'm going back. You know, I yeah. dated a lot of girls when I was. I graduated from Queens College, and so you know, I dated a lot of girls from Hofstra. Yeah. So I kind of yeah. like I feel like I could put myself right into your life at that time, and I remember yeah. what it feels like to be broke. All right, hold on. I'm going to the coffee shop. I'm getting my coffee. Hang on one second. Be loud for a second. Yes, yeah, hold on. Hi, how are you? Uh, I'm Phil. Um, can I have uh, just a coffee to stay? Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. What's your name? I'm Phil. I'm an investor in the company. Yeah. Nice to meet you. All right. Continuing. Yes. All right. So the question I guess I have for you is, you know, like I said, I could relate a lot to what you just described at that time in your life and, you know, yes. getting the first big check going from a couple of hundred dollars in your account to 70000 in your account. But now... If we fast I was forward, a thousandaire. you're a thousandaire, but now you're, you're much more than a thousandaire. And so I guess the question is, what does it feel like for you now? Or how does it feel different for you with the level of wealth? And I don't know what other word to use, but with the level of wealth that you have, do you still feel like you're connected in the same way, still have the same hunger and drive. Like, what is what does that wealth feel like for you right now? Ray Romano has a wonderful line. He says, "When I had nothing, I used to think that my cab driver hated me. Now I think my limo driver hates me." <laughs> <laughs> and how do you how do you perceive that quote personally? Your inner monologue never goes away. Whatever insecurities you have, there's always going to be there. And you always have to, it doesn't, the money doesn't solve that. In fact, in some cases, it can make it worse. There are times when, if you're an insecure person to begin with, you feel like you walk into, let's say, a party and people want to talk to you and you realize that all they're seeing is a big bag of money instead of a human being. Right. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. question sometimes what people's motives are in liking you. So is it better to be rich than poor? Yes. Am I very, very, very lucky? Yes. Yes. My life is very good. No one should feel sorry for Philip. But I have anxiety and worries like everybody else. They're just, you know, you still, you, like somebody said once, I uh, it was after Raymond, right? So, my life is fine. I don't have to worry. But I'm meeting an executive at lunch, and I'm pitching him a new show. And he stops me in the middle of the pitch, and he says, can I ask you something? Why are you still doing this? And I said, doing what? And he said, pitching shows. You don't have to do this. Why are you doing it? I said, what, what do you mean? This is what I do. This is who I am. Because I had a little success, I should lay in bed the rest of my life. I don't understand. He said, that's what I would do. I'm like, Okay. I, I don't think that's a life, right? So we want to stay in the game of life, even if it's not, you know, doing exactly what the success was from last time. You still want to be relevant in some way to the world. You want to matter. Everybody wants to matter somehow. So this is what I do, and it's a struggle. Show business is a struggle, especially as you get older, because the whole business is geared to younger people. 
Maybe there's a, a different way to put this question, but you, there's no place <laughs> now, well, maybe that's an exaggeration. I would say almost anywhere you go in an industrialized nation, if you were to say to somebody, I created Everybody Loves Raymonds, there would be a reaction that somebody would have because they know the show because of its success. Does that sometimes get in the way for you where you feel like you're sucking the oxygen out of the room or it never, how come? I don't know. It's not like I created friends. (laughs) No, it's no, truly. So interesting. No, it's, it's a, it's a very, to me, it's only nice. It's only this like calling card, you know, it's like we have a business card and Oh, they know the company. They know your company. So now you're, now you're welcome a little more than if you were not known for anything, right? Yeah. So generally, by the way, there's two reactions. There's not one reaction. Most of the time people say, oh, I like that show. Or they say, oh, because they haven't seen it. Not everyone has seen the show. <clears throat> but, but they've heard of it. Yeah. But they, you don't get the reaction like Elvis Presley or Mick Jagger or Bruce Springsteen. It's very different, but it's very nice. I'm not saying it's not nice. It's wonderful. Yeah. And especially no, no, no. In where I live in, in Hollywood, yes, more people have heard of it. If I go to New York or anywhere in America, really, people do know the show. But I was a writer on that show. I'm not Ray Romano. Now that I'm on camera, when, you know, when people see me and have seen that, and the odds are much less that people have seen uh, somebody feed Phil, but when they do... I, I get that little moment of, oh, this is what it's like to be somewhat famous, right? I, yeah. I have the perfect level of fame right now. About once a day, someone will stop me and say, oh, I love your show. And, that's, and that, I think everyone should have that moment of validation in their life, you know, every day. Someone should say they, they like what you do. Because well, I certainly don't get it at home. you know there's one word that i hear you say over and over again whether i'm watching the show that you did where you exported raymond to russia that we talked about earlier and that's the word relatable you that's right you initially met with ray to write everybody loves raymond and you told him you know look i can't make you a gay astronaut from cleveland it's not going to work right you know right you can you describe when you talk about low concept versus yes. high concept? What does that mean? Yes. So high concept is we're a family from Mars and we've been sent to Earth to analyze uh, human beings, right? That's a very high concept show. Yep. A low concept show is everybody loves rain. A low concept show is friends. A low concept show is Seinfeld. Where... It's the stuff of everyday life. What is Friends about? Friends is about friends that live in New York together. What is Raymond about? Guy lives with his family across the street from his parents. Nobody was jumping up and down. Oh my God, we have to have that show. It's so sexy. What a great idea, right? Yep. But it turns out that that low concept has infinite, almost infinite, I'm going to say nine years, worth of story ideas, which is almost infinite for television. Because, Because you're... The, the people that come from Mars have a limited number of story ideas because you have to serve that premise every show. Something has to tie into we come from Mars, and then you get Mars jokes, 
or alien jokes, right? And you have to do that all the time. And there's a limit to that. Yeah, because there's so no the there's concept. no limit. Yeah, there's no limit to the Entenmann cake story because there's a thousand exactly. more where that came from. Yes, you're you're limited. You're only limited by real life, whereas the high concept you're limited by a fake life, by a by a fantasy life, and you have to work within the parameters of that specific fantasy. Makes perfect sense to me. All right, so here's what I want to talk about now. Let's move on to your show, yeah. which is how uh, our paths crossed. And frankly, okay. if I'm going to be completely straight with you, my Sunday... Now I'm going to tell you the truth, right? My Sunday ritual was to sit down, have a mimosa, and watch Anthony Bourdain. That's what I love to do, yeah. right? It made me feel I like it. I was in another place. I get it. Yeah, his, and, his last episodes are coming in uh, next week, I think. Yep. And then we had yep. the moment where that all went away, right? So before I get into your show, as a, as a fellow travel person, yeah. where were you when you found the news of Anthony Bourdain, and what did that feel like for you? I know exactly where it was. So the, first of all, it's not long ago. And second of all, I was in Austin at the Austin Television Festival, and I woke up, and two hours later, I was about to premiere the new season uh, of shows to the Austin Television Festival. And an audience was coming to see my food and travel show. Beat this, this episode for the first time. So the world premiere of, I think it was the Venice episode, which is in this batch of episodes that are on now. And I woke up and read that news, and I was completely uh, shocked and, and sad, right? And I, I wrote something just from my heart on Twitter, I think it was. And then I had to go then and address an audience. I, I usually don't, I don't say anything to an audience before we screen a show. I come out after and take questions. But I felt the need to talk to them and address what had just happened because... I wouldn't be here without him. In fact, the way I sold the show was I said to PBS at the time, they said, what's the show like? I said, I said, I'm exactly like Anthony Bourdain if he was afraid of everything. <laughs> so that's my, my whole show is a take on his show, a different way to look at what he does. But he reinvented the whole genre. He to me, was a superhero, you know, an adventurer, a great writer, a great personality, a great chef, a great, very interesting man who even evolved from being a chef and just concerned about the food in different places. You saw on CNN, his show became journalism. He became a great journalist. And the food was definitely secondary to connecting with these people and finding out what was going on politically, socially, culturally, you know, way beyond a food and travel show. For sure. Like I said, every Sunday we sat down and we watched the show and I, I see your picture. You know how Netflix has that little feed and I see your smiley face there. And I looked at By it. By the way, your, your, your picture is different than even your <laughs> wife's picture. You know, the picture you get, you know, do you know that it's tailored to you and your taste? Isn't it crazy? It's crazy. 
Like it's really, really. Oh, oh, oh! You mean how it, um, how it, uh, how it populates uh, information based on uh, on you? The little poster for my show that pops up on your Netflix feed, yeah, is different from your neighbors or your, even your wife's. According oh, to I didn't what you know. Watch. No, I didn't know that. Yep. Like for you, it just might be a picture of meat on a grill. Oh my God, they are smart over yeah. there. Okay. It's okay. All so about this algorithm. Yeah. Yeah. So then we just gave it a shot, right? And we're like, okay, we're looking for something. It's too soon to watch yeah. uh, Anthony right right now. And so right. we, we turn you on. And we absolutely fell in love. You know, Aww. you, I mean, you absolutely fell in love. I don't know if you saw the picture of my wife dancing in the kitchen to your theme song on Instagram that we tagged you. Not in. only did I see it, I reposted it because I oh. loved it so much. <laughs> okay. I wanted you to, I hope that you saw it because I wanted you to know how happy you make our family when we watch you and your show. Um, and for people that, you know, don't know what the show is about, the show basically is where you visit the world's best food cities and you connect with people and you create sort of a cultural bridge with each other and you share a lot of laughs. So I guess the question on the show is why did you decide to do it? Since, I never got to travel as a child. When I was 23, I went to Europe for the first time, and my mind was blown. And I thought, this is the greatest thing to do with your extra money. This is what, I guess, once I can live and feed myself, all my savings is going to go to travel. Because there's no more mind-expanding thing that you can do. And there's no more fun thing you can do. This is what life is for. Let's assume this is a one-way street, and we're never coming back. Uh, life. Uh, and we're only on the planet for the number of years we're allotted, why not see as much of it as possible, right? It's like yep. if you suddenly just somebody gave you a house, would you stay in one room of the house or would you want to see every room of the house? <laughs> right. right. So it's like that. For me, I love, I love it. I, the, the food, as much as I love food and it's like the first thing I want to think about when I'm going, it's really not about the food. Food is the great connector, but what's it connecting you? It's connecting you to the people. It's all about connecting to the people, and I truly think the world would be better if we all could experience a bit of someone else's experience. And so that's what the show is about. I want to get you to travel. If you travel, you are an ambassador. You are an ambassador of the United States. You represent at a time when we need decent representation in the world, you, just by being a normal, half-polite person, you are putting something good in the world. And what you get back changes you fundamentally in the best possible way. You don't even realize. I'm happy if people watch my show and they say they're living vicariously through me, but I don't want them to live vicariously through me. I want them to go. I want you to go because your life will be so much better. You know, you said that two out of three Americans don't even have a passport and only 10% of That's those right. are actually That's using right. it. Why do you That's think right. reluctance, why do you think Americans are so reluctant to travel? We, we get so caught up in our own tiny provincial life that we think that's all there is. And, and we, maybe we, we, we'd rather spend our money, some of us, on material things, on the newest iPhone or whatever it is. We don't value it because we haven't done it. Mm -hmm. 
How is it different for you creating the travel show versus the sitcom? Or do you see it the same way? I see it the same way. It took me a long time to break into show business of any kind. You know, it took just as long, if not longer, to break away from doing what I became known for into something that I really, really felt passionate about and wanted to do. My own agents were not crazy about the idea of me abandoning goldmine of writing a sitcom for some passion project for very, very little money comparatively of doing a food and travel show. They don't, well, why would they want, why would they get excited about that? That doesn't make them any wealthier. But yeah. for you, this is a, this is a passion <laughs> that lights you up. And I, I suppose, yeah. well, I, this is interesting. Do you think yeah. if, you know, years ago, if you had the opportunity to do this show years ago, let's say before Raymond's, yeah. would, you, would you have done it? Of course. It's the best job in the world. Isn't it obvious? It's who very obvious. Who, who wouldn't want to do this? this but, and, but maybe I had to start from a platform of at least I've done something in show business, meaning I know how to make a show. So I'm yeah. utilizing everything I know about how to make a show which involves writing, directing, producing, even now performing. And it's in the service of everything I love in life. But I had to understand the basics of making a show before I could even pitch this show, right? So Raymond was effectively like a training ground for you. It turns out to have been for this. But Raymond, if I never did anything else, it would be perfectly fine if that's all I did because that, that seemed to have worked and seemed to have has, had some impact. So I'm thrilled. Uh, I don't need to be remembered. How many things do we have to be remembered by, right? I'm thrilled to have done Raymond. It was the time of my life. Until this. Now this is the time of my life. What a, so beautifully put. All right, I want to get a little granular if I could. How many weeks sure. a year are you on the road shooting? Well, it's so sporadic, you know? I have to wait a long time between seasons. We did the PBS show. That was six episodes. Uh, the way we film the show is, let's say, uh, we're going to have uh, Bangkok and, and Saigon in the season of six. So we would go and do Bangkok for 10 days and then right away fly to Saigon and do Saigon for 10 days. And so then we would come home before we go out and do two more episodes. So it takes three months to do six episodes is what I'm saying. And then you're editing. But between PBS and Netflix was a year and a half, two years. And between this season of 12 Netflix shows, which were split up and put on in January, and then I had to wait until they showed the next six, which was July, right? But we finished filming those a year ago. We finished filming this show in October, the shows you're seeing now. Yeah, And so now I'm waiting again, so it'll be at least a year before you see any new episodes, if at all. I don't even know if we're coming back. I haven't heard yet. Oh, you're coming back. I'm going to make, I'm going to, I'm going to pick it. So is everybody <laughs> listening on this show, we're going to pick it. There was a, there was a scene that you're making me think about now in Florence, where you mentioned yeah. earlier that you went to Europe when you were in your twenties. And uh, I can't remember his name, but you met this couple. And I remember at the beginning of the episode where Danya and Dario. 
Yeah. You talked about Donnie and Dario, and then you said, and I never saw him again. And right. I was like, I wonder what he's going to do with this. And at the end, boom, here comes Daria and Danya, you know, 20, yep. I guess 30 years later, maybe. Yep. Yep. What does that feel like for you to see them again? Exactly what you see on the show. Crying, hugging, love, your, love, love. Your face, your, you should go back and look at your face. I knew everything I, I knew everything I needed to know about you and your wife when I saw that moment. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. I, I, it was better than I could have expected. And I've seen them since a few times. How logistically difficult is it for you to set up these scenes in foreign countries? You know, you got all these cameras and everything. I have I I have a crew that worries about that for me. I don't have to worry about that. They uh, say, here's my idea. There are these people. I lost touch with them. I don't know. Maybe we can get them. I don't know. And and my wife surprised me with a letter. She found them. And they told me very shortly before, you're going to see them. I'm like, you're kidding. Here, yeah, we found the bakery. We're going in. We're going to film it. Wow. Uh, wow, that's so cool. So you, yeah. you're, you're now becoming the travel go-to guy. And, uh, in fact, I'm using Am I? it. I, 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 so. I, would, I, I would love to be that guy. I think I say it in the episode. I, I feel, because then I feel useful. Like I was telling you about the website, right? But to me, the website is very, very important because you can now use what we learned. And I, I say we, because not just me, I rely on research and teams of people. Do, did you know that my production company, the production company I use, is ZPZ, Zero Point Zero Productions. Oh, that's they were, so good. They were Bourdain's company. I know. In and fact, when I had the choice of where to go, I suggested them. Because who's better than them? And nobody. They, thankfully, said, okay, we'll take you on. They didn't have to do that. That's why it's right? so they, freaking good. Well, it's so beautiful, isn't it? So I can't take any credit for that. It's, it's gorgeous. But what I can take a little credit for is that the food, as gorgeous as it is, this is the wallpaper of shows like this. This is the stuff that, yes, you have to have the nice food shops. But I know you know this because you've seen the show. It's not about that. It's not about no. that. For, no, me, no. for me, food is the great connector, but laughs are the cement. That's how we really move forward in a, in a relationship of any kind. I think it's, you know, that the sense of humor is the most underrated thing in human beings' lives. I think it's how we find our friends. And I'll go one step further. I think it's how we find our significant others. I think you're right. I think you're right. I think um, if you laugh together, if you laugh, it doesn't have to be the exact same sense of humor. You just have to appreciate each other's sense of humor. And, you know, for me, this is always the bridge. You, you, we meet over a meal, as you do in your regular life, in business meeting, you meet over lunch. And if the food is good, you know, it's a good meeting. The person is half decent, nice, pleasant, good meeting. You have common interests, good meeting. But if you laugh, now we want to have another meeting. Right? Now we want to, now we're friends. Yeah, because there's an energy that takes place that's intense. You can't even describe it. It's just now you've just, met, now you've made the super connection. 
We're going to wrap in a minute. I want to ask you a couple of rapid fire questions. It's kind of a first thing that comes to your mind round, but I, I don't want to forget to tell you something. I just listened to uh, Joe Rogan's podcast this week and he's interviewed the director and I can't remember his name. You'll know it uh, when you look it up, the director of zero point uh, Anthony Bourdain's show at zero point zero. And he talked about oh. what it was like for the last 10 years directing all of Tony's episodes. So I think you oh, really wow. get a lot. I think I'll text it to you. I think you get a, a kick out of that. Great. Thank you. So uh, let's move on to the rapid fire round. Answer as quickly or as slowly as you'd like. It's basically a first okay. thing that comes to mind round. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Uh, I know where to eat. If you can only go to one restaurant before you die, where would your last meal be? Probably my mom's house. What's one of the thing? What's one thing that you're afraid of right now? Getting canceled. What keeps you up at night? Getting canceled. <laughs> what do people never <laughs> ask you, but you wish they did? Would you sleep with me? What's the one thing that you want to get better at? <laughs> it's so good. What's, the, what's the one thing that you want to get better at? Sleeping with people. <laughs> what, You're asking a comedy guy. I know this is what I want. I can't though. take it serious. Okay, that's okay. <laughs> what What book have you reread the most? Oh, there's only one book I think that I read more than once, and it's The Shining. What's the one thing that you own and probably should throw out, but you never will? Any picture of myself. I'm going to take two things that you're not allowed to answer in this last question, and you can't uh, reference Raymond, and you can't reference the food show. If you had to give a TED Talk on nothing that you're known for or nothing that you speak about, and it could be on anything wow. you want or anything yes. you have a passion for, what would it be? Yes. Movies. Movies. Yeah. I'm Why? a big movie guy. I, I have a movie night every Sunday, and I've had a movie night every weekend since I'm 15 years old. I'm in love with movies, and I happen to know a lot about movies. What does movie night look like for you? Well, when I was 15, it was when HBO first came out. And when HBO first came out, many people don't realize of a certain age that this was the first time you could see an uncut, unedited film uninterrupted in your house. Right? This was before VCRs. This was before TiVo. This was before anything. You could see an unedited, R-rated movie uncut in your house you know what this is to a 15 year old boy so i had other 15 year old boys come over because we certainly couldn't talk to girls but come over saturday night we might see something and we would order pizza and then this evolved through high school through college where i ran the program for film department on hofstra booking the movies for the college for the whole college uh every weekend there were movies that i was choosing to, to show at college and uh, I even ran the concession stand, right? I ran yeah. the whole thing. So I was producing a movie night all four years of college. And when I graduated and I was a struggling actor in New York, now this was, you know, the early 80s, here come VCRs. And now I'm having people over and ordering pizza. VCRs, and we could see any movie. Then, you know, laser discs come out and the TV gets a little bigger. And with a little success, the TV gets a little bigger. And now comes 
you know, the next technology, DVDs, and then here come Blu-rays, and the TV gets a little bigger, to the point where I am now, which is, I have a movie theater in my house, a dedicated digital cinema, and I'm on what's called the Bel Air Circuit, which is something in Hollywood that's been around since the dawn of movies, where people in the industry, as a courtesy, get movies as they are released to the theaters. So I get, I can, you know, this Friday night, I can see whatever movie is coming out Friday night in the movie theaters, in my friggin' house. And I have people over, and now I have a wood-burning oven in my kitchen, a pizza oven, and I have a pizza guy come over, make the pizza fresh, and then we go into my movie room and watch a current release. That sounds like the most exciting thing that I've ever heard in my life to be a part of. It is the most thrilling thing. And what makes it most thrilling is having the filmmaker come. And that has happened too for my 25 friends. Oh my God. What a dream. Yeah. Phil, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Um, I'm going to link up to your website, the Netflix show and all of the other stuff that we referenced, but from the bottom of my heart, thank you. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you, my friend. I hope to meet you one of these days. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.